All right, guys, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open with me to Luke chapter 8. The table was wrong. It would have bothered me all service if I didn't fix it. All right, Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be at this morning. As you're uh, flipping there, let me just remind you of our objective. Uh, if you've been coming through the, from the beginning of the Luke series, uh, you're probably tired of hearing this, but I feel like I need to continue to put it before us. We are going through the book of Luke, looking at the life of Jesus with one objective in mind, okay? And here's what we're trying to do. We are trying to over and over and over again see who Jesus is, what Jesus said about himself, and what he expects of us. Like, we're trying to get a clear picture of who Jesus is. Now, as we've gone through that, uh, even this week, as I've considered, uh, as we've gone through the last eight chapters, if you've been reading with us, you've read every account, as I've, as I've thought about the way kind of God's working in my spirit as I look at Jesus, I find myself... Uh, thinking about three C words, all right? And this is not like points to take. This just happens to be all C words, all right? I, I, I guess I think in alliteration, okay? Uh, but first of all, as we go through the book of Luke, I found myself confronted. I found myself confronted because the picture we see of Jesus here uh, and that Luke is setting before us is one of authority and size on Jesus' part. Like, he's bigger than what we oftentimes put him in the box to be, right? He, he comes as the authoritative king of the universe. Like, he does stuff like, listen, tell wind and waves to stop, and they stop, right? We read that last week. And, like, that, that presses me so much because I have a five-year-old who won't listen to me, but the wind and the waves listen to Jesus. Like, this is, a, this is a confrontation Jesus is making to us, that I am not like you. I also find myself con uh, comforted, though. So I find myself confronted, I find myself comforted, because maybe, unlike any other gospel author, Luke puts forward for us Jesus in all of his kindness. Like, he, he comes into these sinners, and he's just increasingly kind to them. And the reason why I think that's so special is that a lot of us, as we deal with Jesus, we would think Jesus' first words to us would not be words of kindness, right? There would be words of rebuke. We, we think we're going to come up with Jesus and Jesus is going to say, hey, I know what you did. I know what you thought. I know what you said. Like, I know it. But what do we find Jesus? He doesn't even bring it up. Instead, in kindness, he meets us where we're at. And then I find myself challenged, last of all, because as I have talked with people, and we go through Luke, as I talk with people, what I'm finding is that people are having to deal with Jesus on His terms for the very first time. Right? Nothing messes up your faith like reading the Bible will mess up your faith, right? Because before you read the Bible, you've got your own ideas about what it looks like. You read the Bible and you begin to think, hey, this ain't at all what I thought. And so we, what we realize is that as Jesus comes, He sets the terms for us. Here's the thing. Jesus does not come requesting anything. He comes demanding. And so I, I'm, just, I'm challenged by the sheer claim that Jesus is laying on our life. We have to do it by His terms or not at all. And what we're going to find and what we're going to see today and what we've seen up to this point really is this. Jesus is the authoritative and kind king of the universe who has come to save sinners. Now, I want, I want to ask the, the graphics guy to leave that up for a second because I want us to think about it. 
Jesus is the authoritative and kind king of the universe who has come to save sinners. You see, a lot of times what happens is, we're going to do this a few times throughout the course of this sermon, we see words like this, and because we are good church people, right? We've, we've done the church thing, right? We've heard stuff like this. We begin to hear stuff like this, and we become numb to what's actually being said. Think with me a second about what's being said. We're saying that Jesus has come as an authoritative king. Not requesting, but demanding. Not under power, but over power, over all, right? Like he tells wind and waves to stop, and they stop. He tells dead people to rise, and they live. We looked at that in Luke chapter 5. He comes as an authoritative king. But look, he also comes as a kind king. Like a king that wants to do business with you and with me. So let's, if it's possible... Let, let's ditch our church ears for a, a morning, okay? Let's hear what I'm about to say as if you've never heard the story before. Let's hear the truth that we're about to hear as if you've never encountered the truth before. And let's see what it'll do to our lives. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40, here's what the Scripture says. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, remember what we've said about Jesus. He is a first century celebrity. Everywhere he goes, people are crowding him out. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the context here, Luke is trying to clue us in on something very important for the sake of this story. Jairus, as a leader of the synagogue, was a very important man in the society of the day. Here's what that means. He was not a man who was accustomed to asking for help. Instead, he was a man accustomed to giving orders and getting what he needed. Now, he would not have been uh, like a dictatorial military leader, but he would have been someone who was well thought of and, and probably, most likely, a proud man. What he did as the synagogue leader was a lot like uh, what you might, what if you went to like a really traditional church uh, back home, what like the head deacon might have done, like with requesting volunteers and ordering services and that kind of thing. In other words, Jairus is a, is a, uh, a prominent man who's not accustomed to begging. But notice where we find Jairus. Verse 40, uh, 40, 41, there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, listen to what he did, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. Now parents, let's read with our imagination for just a second. Isn't this the worst possible scenario? Like, isn't this the stuff nightmares are made out of? The stuff where you have someone that you would gladly take their place and die for, right? That's what, that's what a parent's love is. Like, that's the closest kind of love I can think. Like, my life for theirs. That's that kind of love. But they are withering away in front of your face, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the situation Jairus finds himself in. So this proud man, we can all of a sudden see why he's not proud anymore. He's humble. He's on his knees. He's begging for Jesus to come. Now, why? He had a 12-year-old daughter, and she was dying. Verse 42 continues, As Jesus went, the people pressed in around him. Now I want you to see the kindness of Jesus here. Jairus is a synagogue leader, which means, by and large, him and Jesus at this point are not in the same camp. If you remember, at this point, Jesus is making a lot of enemies with the religious leaders of the day. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees are about now are starting to plot to kill him. So in my flesh, what I would expect Jesus to say when Jairus comes up to him and says, Jesus, 
I'm on my knees begging. I have a daughter. I would expect Jesus to say something like this. Jairus, I don't know if you know this. Me and you, we're not friends. Your people are trying to kill me, and that makes us not friends. So I'll tell you what you can do, Jairus. You can heal your own daughter. Now, that might sound a little harsh, but we're talking about fleshly response. But here's the point. Jesus is not like us. He is not a, a, a mean, uh, he's not a mean, vindictive king. He is a kind king. So where do we find Jesus at this point? And it says, as Jesus went. He just went with him. He didn't even address the whole, hey, your people are trying to kill me kind of thing. He didn't address the whole, hey, you guys don't want me to teach in the synagogue because you say that I'm, I'm a heretic. What does he do? In his kindness, he goes, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, contextually, what I think Luke is trying to clue us in on here is that this woman, obviously, her discharge of blood means that she had a female issue, okay? Uh, and that is as delicately as I'm going to handle that today, all right? But she had a female issue for 12 years. Now, in honesty, if we can just have a moment of clarity, my wife tells me, reminds me all the time that I am not a woman and that I don't know what it feels like to be a woman. And that, to that, I respond to her, praise God, okay? <laughs> but women, let's just be honest, y'all got it hard enough, right? The whole babies thing seems like just enough. But this woman finds herself in a totally desperate... Can, can you put yourself in her shoes? Can you imagine... Going 12 years like this. First thing I want you to see from today's text is this. Jesus responds to desperate people. Jesus responds to desperate people. The three that We encounter three people here. You may not have realized it, but we actually encounter three people, all of whom are the definition of desperate. First of all, we encounter a hopeless father. And if I can just be honest with you, I resonate a little bit with, with the father here, and I, I won't go into detail of this because I've told this story before, uh, and I even mentioned it a little bit last week. But Danny's, uh, Danny's uh, birth was problematic, to say the least. And I, that was the first time, Danny was three minutes old, the first time that I got put into a situation where I realized my complete inability to help my child, right? Danny, Danny in, is, has just been born, has turned blue, and I pray a prayer to God, something to the effect that if she's going to have breath, you're going to have to give it to her. Can I just tell you, in that moment, desperate was the only word that described me. And so I resonate with this guy. He's got, and he's got a daughter, 12 years old, dying. And the Bible tells us she was 12 years old to kind of clue us into what's going on. It's telling us that she's at the age where life's really just about to begin for her. Right? Like at 12 years old in Jewish culture, she was about to enter womanhood. Can, God, fathers, can you imagine burying your daughter before you ever get the chance to walk her down the aisle? That's where this father finds himself. So he's a hopeless father, but also he's introducing us to a helpless little girl. Imagine being 12 and, and wasting away day after day and after day with no hope. Every day you wake up and you're a little bit worse than the day. That's the situation this girl found herself in. We have a hopeless father. We have a helpless little girl. And we have a despairing outcast. This woman who had had the issue of blood. And we're going to talk more about each of them as we go. But as I read through this, 
And I, this, this truth kind of came to the top. Jesus responds to desperate people. What became obvious, though, is that there is a physical truth associated with this point, and there's a spiritual truth associated with this point. So every point we're going to look at today, as we walk through this to- story, we're going to see a physical truth and a spiritual truth that comes from this point. Okay? Here's the first thing I want you to see. The physical truth that we see about this is this, that our inability in certain situations reveals to us our desperate need for Jesus, a king who is authoritative and kind. This is a physical reality of life. Nothing shows you your own weakness. And can I just be honest? Uh, people like myself who come into this place young this morning, we don't even really have a category for this if we've, leave, if we've lived uh, pretty freely, okay? But nothing shows just your own personal weakness like when something doesn't work when it's supposed to work. Nothing shows you that you're weak when you wake up in the morning and something's supposed to be working and you find out it's not working right. This shows us our own inability. That's the case when I saw Danny not breathing, right? In this moment, my inability was what was obvious, right? If I could have gone over and made her breathe, that's what I would have done. But when something that was supposed to work didn't work, my weakness gets brought to the top. Now, this is true physically. But it's also true spiritually. I want you to see the spiritual truth in this. The spiritual truth is this. Spiritually strong people have no need for Jesus. Spiritually strong people have no need for Jesus. Spiritually desperate people do. What takes me aback in this story is that there are a lot of people, presumably in this crowd, who wanted time with Jesus, who wanted something from Jesus. But there were a lot of people in this crowd who got nothing from Jesus. What's the difference? These people who actually got Jesus realize exactly how much they need Jesus. People who realize their own brokenness and their inability to fix it, they're the people who get Jesus. This is why, if we can be honest with each other, you don't meet a lot of real Christians who are proud people. Now, there are a lot of people who come to church who are proud people, but you don't meet a lot of genuine, born-again, repentant Christians who are proud people. Why is that? It's because it's really hard to walk around with your chest poked out when you know just how broken you actually are. This is why Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you want to know who goes to heaven? It's not the people who have it all figured out. It's the people who are broken and they know they can't fix it and they're messed up about it. These are the people who are Christians. Understanding our own inability is the foundation of desperation. This is why there's an incompatibility with Christianity and swagger. Christians do not swagger as strong people. Right? We don't walk in here every week with our chest poked out. We walk in here limping as desperate people. We walk in here not as people who have it all figured out, but people who are hoping to God that Jesus has it all figured out. And until we understand our desperate status, Christ is unwilling to help us. I'm going to say that again because it's really important for wherever you find yourself. Until you understand that you are broken and unable to do anything to help yourself, Jesus is unwilling to help you. You know who Jesus was willing to help in this story? Those who understood that without Him, they didn't have a prayer. I read a story this week that kind of highlights 
that kind of highlights this, or at least it did in my mind. Is anybody, maybe there are some other nerds in the room, all right? Let, just embrace your nerd moment. Ha, have, has anybody in this room ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? Like you've actually read them? All right, good. That makes me feel so good because, y'all, there was, I'm telling y'all, that people were like, Chronicles of Narnia, you are a nerd, all right? Like, go read them. They're really good books, all right? But I, I've been working my way through the Chronicles of Narnia, and I made my way to the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, okay? And in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we're introduced to a person named Eustace. See, there are people in the back laughing at me right now. They're like, you read, what a nerd, all right? <laughs> but <laughs> in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we're introduced to a character named Eustace. Now, you know that we're not supposed to like Eustace because his name is Eustace, okay? Like, and if you're here this morning and your name is Eustace, I am sorry, Okay. <laughs> But we're introduced to a character named Eustace, and we know from the very beginning we're not supposed to like Eustace just because of his name, and it turns out that his character absolutely matches his name. He is a little boy who is vile and wretched and self-centered, and it thinks he's self-sufficient and thinks that he's got it all figured out, but really is a vile, wicked sinner. Okay? Now, as, the, as the, the party journeys on the dawn treader and as they sail, they come across an island. Now, Eustace gets out of the boat on the island, and makes his way to a treasure cove. And now Eustace, being a, a self-centered uh, little punk, okay, goes and steals the treasure. But what he does not realize is that as he steals the treasure, it is going to make him look physically like what he is spiritually. Okay, So Eustace puts this treasure on, and he goes to sleep, and he wakes up the next morning, and Eustace is a dragon. Now, some of you are like dragons, like, man, you do have too much free time, all right? But the whole point that C.S. Lewis wants to represent is that Eustace has now become, on the outside, what he already was on the inside, a beast, a, a, a sinner, a, a, somebody who was vile and disgusting. And so Eustace looks into the reflection, and he begins to see his reflection, and he begins to mourn at just how wicked he is. The scales have fallen off his eyes, and he begins to see. But Eustace lives with no hope of ever being changed. Until one night, in his sleep, Aslan comes to him. Now, if you've ever read the book, you know who Aslan is. Aslan is Jesus. And Aslan, the powerful lion, comes to Eustace, and he takes him to a well, and he says, Eustace, undress yourself. And the dragon begins to rip his skin off and he tears and he rips and he, he becomes desperate. And all of a sudden he has hope because as, as he rips, he begins to step out of the dragon skin and he's become a little boy again. And he steps over to the well and he looks down the well only to find that he's again a dragon. So he tries again. And he rips and he claws and his desperation turns into joy as he realizes maybe this time I can be good enough, strong enough, powerful enough. And he steps out of the dragon's skin and he looks in the well only to find that nothing's actually changed. And he does this over and over and over again each time his desperation is growing until Aslan looks at him and says this, Eustace, I must undress you. And here's the point C.S. Lewis wants us to understand that you can try your hardest to fix yourself, to make it all right yourself. But here's where you are at the end of the day, broken and unable to do anything for yourself. And until you get to the place where you need Jesus to do something for you, you don't actually understand how desperate you really are. We come into this place week after week, and we come as desperate people. Are you desperate for Jesus? Jesus responds in the story to desperate people. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus has authority over disease. Read with me. Starting in verse 44. 
Now, I, I really do love the, the human flair of the Bible every now and then because we're told in Luke that Luke says she spent all of her money on physicians and could not be healed. Now, Mark says it this way. You might go read the account of Mark. Mark says she suffered much at the hands of doctors and at the end was no better than when she started. Now, Luke says she just couldn't be healed. You want to know why? Luke's a doctor. He's like, hey, man, it's not. We tried our best, right? Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now, this is kind of a problematic story because it kind of presents itself as Jesus doesn't even have control of his own power, and you can kind of, in a mystical way, go and grab Jesus, and anybody can be healed. And if we could just find a garment today, if you have cancer, you wouldn't have cancer. I think that's really problematic. There are really two readings of what happened that we can understand. Number one, Jesus, being the Son of God, was still in connection with God the Father. And as he walked through and this woman touched his garment, God the Father somehow overcame Jesus' agency and, and made the woman healed. Now, that's one way that uh, theologians have read this story for years. Another way that theologians have read this story is that Jesus knows the answer to this question from the moment he begins to ask. Like, Jesus is not caught off guard. Jesus knows exactly where he is and what he's doing and where he's going. He's doing the Father's work. So Jesus asked this question in order to bring her out. Okay? Now, I love the exchange that we're about to see. Look what happens. Verse 44. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing you in on you. In other words, Peter's like, Jesus, Really? Man, there are people everywhere, Jesus. Jesus, who touched you? Jesus, everybody touched you. Now, one preacher said it this way. Peter is constantly playing the hokey pokey with his feet in his mouth. <laughs> put your right foot in, take your right foot out, put your left foot in. That's, that's Peter. The dude, the dude is just constantly stepping in it, right? And what's, what's really funny about this to me is that I would think in this moment, Jesus would have been like, who are you talking to, man? Like, I have to believe that at some point Jesus, like, got him alone. He's like, Peter, you come at me like that again in public, bro, you're done. <laughs> Whole wind and waves thing, it's gonna, you're going to be over the boat, right? But for some reason, Jesus kind of turns the other cheek to Peter, and here's what he says. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. In other words, no, nah, we're going to get to the bottom of it. Like, y'all were all denying it, but there's one of you here, and you're going to come forward. Gonna, that's a South Georgia word. <laughs> and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came, listen to this, trembling. Here's the reason why I think this is important. This woman had it all figured out about how she was going to come to Jesus on her terms. I'm going to slip in under the cover of the people. No one's going to know. And I'm going I'm to get my little fix of Jesus, and I'm going to go on out, and it's all going to be taken care of. Here's what I want us to understand about this. We do not set the terms when it comes to following Jesus. You don't get to say, well, Jesus, I'm just going to follow you like this, and I'm going to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You don't get Jesus like that. And if you come to Jesus like that, Jesus is not going to let you stay like that. So this woman says, I'm going to come on my terms, and Jesus says, let me introduce you to my terms. Now, the reason why I think it's important that we point out she's trembling, following Jesus on his terms isn't always easy. I don't think you, if you're a real Christian, there should be times when following Jesus scares you to death. And this is what we find in this woman. She's trembling. But you know what she's doing? 
She's following Jesus on his terms. You don't get to set them. Jesus does. So she comes forward, and here's what she does. She gives her testimony. She says, And falling down before him, she, and declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And listen to what Jesus says. You would think Jesus would say, Hey, don't touch me. I'm going to heal Jairus' daughter. I got stuff to do, woman. What, isn't that what you think? He's busy. That's not what he says. He's not a vindictive king. He's not a mean king. He's a kind king. Look what he says. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, there's a physical truth at play here. I want us to see the physical truth. And the physical truth is this. Jesus has authority over every disease and sickness. Jesus has authority over every disease and sickness. Now, here's the problem with what just happened. I just said one of the truest statements that's ever been uttered, and not one person said amen. You know, now, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you, all right? The problem is y'all are a bunch of church people, okay? I'm a, I get it. I'm a church, but I, I'm a professional Christian, okay? But the problem with church people is we hear stuff like this, and we don't let it sink into what I just said. See, what I said was that Jesus has authority over every single disease and sickness that there has ever been. And now when I said that, somebody should have said, that's good stuff, preacher, that right there. That'll preach. Somebody should have said, amen, preacher. That's, somebody should have said, mmm. Somebody should have said, ooh, and I. So we're going to try this again. And I want you to take off your church ears, and I want you to listen to what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has authority over every disease and sickness. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> it, this matters, guys. Because, listen, we can come in here, and you can hear it, and you don't believe it. You know how? You don't, I know you don't believe it. Because there are times when I live it and I don't believe it. Oh, so-and-so got cancer. Man, it's tough. Oh, so-and-so's been struggling. I, oh, God, ain't this earth is tough on us. But we live and we don't believe what I just said. That there is no sickness that anyone in this room faces that Jesus is afraid of. Cancer? He's, he's got it. Maybe you've been here and you've been struggling with infertility for years. He's not scared. Arthritis, maybe you can't open your hands. Here's what I'm telling you. That all can be cured with the grace of His robe. Now, here's the deal. I'm not like a name it, claim it preacher. All right? You might say, well, preacher, I've been praying for years about this. She struggled for 12 years. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. But what I am telling you is that sometimes we, remove, we, we put distance between us and Jesus such that we say, well, he did this then. He don't operate like this now. And I want you to understand this, that James chapter 5 says that the same power that made Elijah pray and there was no rain and then Elijah prayed and there was rain, that that same power is available to me and you. So if we've got it, we can at the very least pray for it. Okay. Now, maybe God never, never heals you. Can I, just, can I lay before you as your pastor in all honesty? That may be the case this morning. You may be in here this morning, and you just may be, you may be over the top. Like, there's stuff you got going on I don't even know about. Dallas, you don't know about the diagnosis. Dallas, you don't know what I've got going on. You don't know what the doctor told me. You don't know how hard it's been for our family. And can I just tell you, amen, you're right. But I want to, I want to encourage you because there's a day that we're all heading toward where we're all going to be just like this woman. Revelation 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying, guess what, nor pain. Everyone in here over 40 said yes and amen. Take heart today. And listen, can I just tell you, it takes courage to believe this. It takes courage to believe that you have hope in a Jesus who can meet you where you're at physically. 
one, heading for a day, one day soon, where everything wrong will be made right. That's the physical truth. But listen, there's also a spiritual side of this truth. The spiritual side of this truth is this. Jesus makes all that is unclean and broken clean and whole. In this woman, we have a picture of brokenness and impurity. Now, I'm going to spare you the Levitical law this morning. I'm not going to read to you Leviticus 15. But if you were to go back and read Leviticus 15, what you would find is that this woman, uh, by the Old Testament law, is ceremonially unclean. Okay? She, she, she's, in a, in a sense, dirty. Okay? Now, I want you to notice why this is so important. Being ceremonially unclean means there's no longer a way for you to deal with your sin. So as a Jew, you understood you were a sinner, but you could go into the temple, you could go into the synagogue, and you had a way to deal with your sin. God would take care of it. Notice what this woman has. No hope for taking care of her sin because she's dirty and cannot come before God. Now that should start to sound really familiar to you and me. Because we're this woman. We're broken, we're dirty, and we've got no way to handle our sin. But notice this too. She wasn't just cut off from God. She was cut off from society. The people thought that this impurity was communicable. That God had told them, listen, this impurity spreads, right? So such that they had to cut her out from society because if you touched the woman or if you even touched a garment that the woman had touched, you became unclean. So this woman had been cut off, left out to dry, right? Maybe she was married, and after 12 years, the husband had had enough because he had been unclean too. We don't know. All we know is that she's lonely, she's broke, and she's cast out. And now here's why this is so important. Traditionally, when someone touched something that was unclean, they became unclean. Now get what happens here. Jesus touches her, and she doesn't become unclean, she becomes clean. Why? Because Jesus makes all that is unclean and broken clean and whole. She was broken and lonely. You know what Jesus called her? My daughter. Understand this, without Christ, we are all this woman. Are we not broken? Can, I, can, can we be honest with each other for a minute? Are we not broken? Is your, some of us think too highly of ourselves, too. Some of you are like, no, I'm not broken. Be honest with yourself. Is your very life not a testimony to your brokenness? If you're honest with yourself, it is, right? Are we not lonely? Can you not be surrounded by a group of people and still feel lonely and all alone? Have we not spent all of our money looking for solutions to our problems that seem to never leave us satisfied? We are this woman. And where can we find hope? Where can we find satisfaction that never fails? Where can we find someone to make us clean from our sin? Here comes Jesus down the road. If we can only touch His garment, we'll be made whole. Last thing I want you to see is this. Jesus has authority over death. Look at verse 49. Now imagine Jairus' roller coaster of emotions at this point. He gets Jesus coming, so he's got to feel hopeful. Okay, Jesus is on the way. He's going to take care of this. And then Jesus is stopped, which is problematic. Because Jairus, you've got to think, is like looking at his clock and saying, Jesus, hey, we've got to go. Like, she, Jesus, I don't know what you thought. She's, she's sick, sick. Like, she's going to die, Jesus. And this woman stops, and Jairus is just going to be like, good grief. 
And then all of a sudden, J- Jairus recognizes what's going on. Jairus is like, hey, I know this woman. This woman, she's got the issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Holy smokes, Jesus just healed her. This is going to work. I'm sorry, that was too loud. <laughs> Holy smokes, this woman's going to be all right. Jesus, Jesus can heal her. Surely Jesus can heal my baby. So he's like, all right, Jesus, let's, let's get going again. And then all of a sudden, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. First of all, let's talk about etiquette if you ever had to deliver bad news. What a jerk. Like, you could, hey, brother, I know it's been a tough, tough day. I got some really tough dudes. Do you want to sit down? Hey, man, leave the teacher alone. She's dead. And so Jesus has to be like, whoop. I mean, Jairus has to be like, whoop, whoop. And all of a sudden, listen to what Jesus says next. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. And all of a sudden, Jairus is like, there's a chance. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And listen to this. All the people laughed at him. Jesus, she's dead. Like, she's cold. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. Now, I don't want to run past this. This is an important, uh, important phrase. When Jesus says, child, arise... He uses the phrase Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. It's the same phrase that a parent would have used in the day to in this day to wake up their child. You know, parents, when you stroke your kid on the forehead and you come on, baby, time to get up. That's what he's doing here. Now I can't relate to that because most of the time I'm saying, Danny, so help me if you don't get out of bed. <laughs> like I'm, you go get up, right? G- Every now and then, like on a Saturday, that, this is what's happening, right? Danny, get up, baby. Danny, little girl, it's time to get up. That's what Jesus is doing here. And notice what happens. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Sometimes Jesus just wants you to take a snack. Chill out. Her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one. Now, I want you to see what happens here. Phys- this is a physical truth. Now, I need you to take off your church ears because I'm about to say something. And if you don't say amen, so help me, I'm leaving, all right? <laughs> Jesus puts death to death. That wasn't hard, see? He does it here graciously. He does it later personally. And one day he's going to do it corporately for all of us. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26, listen to this. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day when Jesus has put everything right, the last thing that he's going to do is he's going to sit on his throne, and he's going to put his feet up, and you know what he's going to put his feet up on? Death. A headstone. He puts death to death. Let's think about this. Is death not our most profound enemy? Some of us have experienced this thing in a major way. Like you, you've actually seen death. You know what death looks like, right? You've lost a spouse or a child or a parent. Like you, you've been there. You know, personally, we know that it's a problem in general. Death is coming, is hard to deal with, right? And we've, we've been associated with that pain. But it's also a problem personally because we know it's coming for us. And if I can just be unpastoral, non-pastoral for just a moment, I've never understood in my flesh how someone could be at peace with dying. People who say that, they just, I feel like they've never seen death. Because if you've ever been in the room with death, it's just not natural. 
Like I've watched it, and people who die, they're fighting not to die. Like even in the last breath that people take when they're dying, there's an attempt to breathe again, it just doesn't come. And like I've watched that pastorally and thought, hey, listen, I know like what's on the other side of it, but that ain't right. Something's messed up with this. I've never understood how people could be at peace with it. But Jesus kind of given us another, another angle to take here. Because to Jesus, death is a singular. It's a sleep. It's one sleep on the way to eternity. That's why I don't think Jesus is like lying when he says these, these people. I think this is how Jesus views death. Death is not death to Jesus. Death is sleep. It's a temporary loss of consciousness on the way to an unspeakable reality. How awesome is this? That we have an authoritative and kind king who says, hey, one day you're going to go to sleep and you're going to wake up to a reality that you've never even imagined before. If that's you this morning, we can be at peace dying because we're not dying, we're going to sleep. If that's not you, the most important thing you can take care of today is to figure out how you can have that life. Spiritual truth, I want you to see, though, is this, and this, this leads into that. How can you have that assurance? How can you have that life? The spiritual truth is this. Jesus makes dead people alive again. Outside of Christ, I want you to understand something, that we are all in the spiritual state that this girl is in physically, dead. I don't want to bust your burble this morning, but here's the reality. You're not a good person. A lot of us, we come in here week after week, and we think, I'm not that bad, right? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. When I get to heaven, Jesus is going to let me in because I've made some bad decisions, but on the whole, I'm a good person. I want you to understand something today. You are not a good person. You are a dead person. And spiritually, if you do not find a way to get back to life, you are going to die and you are going to experience eternal death. This is what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. This, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I don't know if you know this, but good person and child of wrath are not synonymous terms. Jesus is saying, you are dead without me. You are like the little girl. Dead people are without hope. That's why the people laughed at Jesus. Dead people are without power. They laughed because there's nothing she could do to come back. Dead people are without solution to their death. Unless there is a king who is kind and shows interest in us, and a king who has authority and has power to do something about death. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says this, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to what He did, made us alive together with Christ. Jesus makes dead people alive again. And you may be here this morning, you may be dead in sin. What does that mean? It means that you have never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin and make you alive again. Listen, if you've never done that, you are dead in your sin, okay? And maybe right now the Holy Spirit is telling you, like, listen, you need to become alive again. Listen to the Holy Spirit. What's the solution? How can you be made alive again? Listen, here comes Jesus. He walks into the room, and he looks at you, and he says, little girl, little boy, get up. Jesus wants to make you alive again today. If that's you and you're here, I would love to talk. I'll be standing right in the back. I would love to pray with you. 
for you to go from death to life. For those of us who are believers, let me close with this. I simply don't have a category for how we could look at Jesus over and over and over again and not find that this kind and authoritative king is good. I don't see how we could look at Jesus over and over and over again and not say, I want more of that guy. Would you pray that God would give you more of himself this morning? Pray with me. And Jesus, Jesus, I understand, dear God, that I probably foolishly, dear God, said something that didn't need to be said. I pray that you would forgive me. I, pr- I understand that I probably got ahead of myself, and I pray that you would forgive me for where that happens. Dear God, I pray simply that your Holy Spirit would be in this room and it would overcome my weaknesses. I pray if there's somebody who's dead in their sin, that this would be a moment where they would come to life. God, I understand just how foolish I am, just how messed up I am. Just Lord, I understand that I am a sinner. Would you forgive me where I fall short? And God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, do something powerful in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.